0: In the, name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Today, Christ is proposing to each one of us. Christ is proposing to each one of us. He's asking us to marry Him to become His bride. I want you to imagine this whole passage, this whole scene, as if Christ is on one knee proposing to you. Christ is going down on one knee, asking you to marry Him. And the truth is, that's essentially the theme of this whole passage. That Christ is going to meet his bride and proposing to her, asking her to marry him. And this woman, the Samaritan woman, represents each one of us. So in a sense, he's coming to propose to each one of us, asking us to marry him. So let's look at the context of this passage and we'll see where I'm getting all this from. First of all, where does this take place? It's at Jacob's well, right? Now, what's the big deal with Jacob's well? Jacob's well is where many of the most prominent figures in the Old Testament met their bride as well. Right? It's where men like Isaac found Rebekah, men like Jacob found Rachel, and men like Moses found Zipporah. All at Jacob's well. Right? And so when you read this passage and you see this event taking place at Jacob's well, you might be wondering, is someone going to meet his bride? Okay? So St. Ephraim says, Eleazar had given Rebekah as a bride to Isaac at the well of water. Jacob did the same for Rachel at the well of water, and so did Moses for Zipporah at the well of water. All of these therefore were types of our Lord who betrothed his church. Right? So, What's the implications of this specific encounter taking place at Jacob's well? It's that Christ is going to meet His bride as well, right? That He's going to find His future wife. And don't forget, is He with anyone else? He's all alone. His disciples are in the town getting food, right? So it's basically like He's setting the scene, you know, when someone's going to go on a private little dinner with their special someone and they're getting ready to pop the question... This is exactly what we have here. Christ is alone with this woman, and he intends to propose to her. Okay? Father Thomas Harko says, anyone familiar with the Holy Scripture can't hear about a man meeting a woman at a well and asking to drink and serving there at the well and the spring of water without thinking about these marriages. So here is a story also of a man meeting his bride. That Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, is encountering a woman who symbolizes his bride. And his bride, of course, is the whole of humanity, the whole of fallen, cursed, sinful, dead humanity. But you wouldn't have in the Bible a better symbol of that than a Samaritan woman, especially a Samaritan woman who, according to the narrative of St. John's Gospel, seems to be a sinful woman. So what this woman embodies is humanity in a nutshell. Everything about humanity is embodied in this woman. Just in a state of sin. She's a Samaritan. She's outside of God's Jewish nation. She's living in sin. She's had five husbands. She's living in so much shame and embarrassment. She's got to go to the well in the middle of the day when it's hot just to avoid the crowd because she doesn't want anyone to see her. This is the condition of humanity as a whole. Right? Right? So she embodies each and every single one of us, right? She represents me, and she represents you. So it's not like Christ is just going to meet any random person at the well. He's going to meet me, and he's going to meet you. C.S. Lewis says, With regard to God, we're all female. With regard to God, we're all female. Whether you're a man or a woman... When it comes to your relationship with God, you're a female. Why? Because you're His bride. It's funny, just a few days ago, I was at a coffee shop reading. And I had a book next to me. It's uh, the book by Brent Petrie, which is Jesus, the Bridegroom. And this lady walks in, she sees the book sitting on the table. And I have my earpods in, I'm, I'm just like listening to some background music doing my own thing she points at the book she's like yes yes each one of us is his bride I'm his bride you're his bride each one of us is his bride I'm like yeah (laughs) and then this lady walks over to the barista and starts to talk to him about he's the bride as well like don't you know that I'm his bride and you're his bride Now do you have any idea how old this lady was 93 years old She walked in and she's like taking these tiny little steps but in her old age she still recognized this reality And there's a difference between considering yourself a wife than a bride Right? You're not a bride forever, right? You're a bride on your wedding day, right? Maybe during your honeymoon you know kind of act like the bride, but after that ship has sailed you're like, "Hey, wedding day's over, honeymoon's over. It, it's a different story." Right? But in our relationship with Christ, we retain that title, that identity of a bride. Like this old 93-year-old lady I was shocked when I learned her age because she's still walking around ordering coffee, preaching. She recognized the vigor and the beauty and the youthfulness of a bride that she herself identified with. With regard to God with all females. So Christ is proposing to me. He's proposing to you. And so he considers us his bride. Think about what they actually spoke about at the well as well. What's the content of their dialogue? Their whole conversation was about marriage, right? Not only was the place within the context of all these previous marriages, but the content of their dialogue is all about marriage. He tells her, give me some water, right? And he says, like, how dare you talk to me, Uh, I'm a Samaritan, whatever, right? If you had known who it is he's talking to, you would have asked him for water. He's giving you everlasting water. Right? And so, she says, Okay, I want this water. Give me this water. How does Christ respond as soon as she says, Give me this water? He says, Go, call your husband, and come here. Right? So, prior to that, he's telling her, I am the one who will give you this water. And she says, okay, give me this water. Then he says, go call your husband and come here. What's he implying here? He's implying that if you want this water, you got to call your husband, right? You're asking for water? Okay, go call your husband. So your husband will be the one to give you this water, right? And if I am the one who gives you this water, then I am your husband. Right? He doesn't really care a whole lot about the five other husbands she's had in the past. He says, I will give you this water. He says, okay, give, it, give me this water, I want it. Okay, call your husband. Right? I'm the one who will give you this water, so I am your husband. This isn't a new concept that Christ is presenting to us. Christ as a bridegroom is not a strange new concept. This has been the theme of the scriptures from the very beginning. Think about the most common illustration of our relationship with God throughout the Old Testament. Right? You have God as a father to his children, right? You see that, where God is a father and humanity is his children. You have definitely this illustration of a master and a servant, you have the illustration of a shepherd and his flock. But nothing is more prominent throughout the Old Testament. No illustration is more frequently used than that of a husband and his wife. Nothing is more prominent throughout the entire scriptures. That's the, the, the most frequently used illustration to describe our relationship with God. So at the very core, it's not just a father and a son, it's not just a master and a servant, it's not just a shepherd and his sheep, but it's a husband and his wife. In Isaiah 54, verse five, the scriptures tell us, "Your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is His name. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name." St. Paul recognizes, in 2 Corinthians 11:2, "I've betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste version to Christ." And so the entire history of humanity is encapsulated in this theme. Like this marital relationship with God. From beginning to end, creation even begins with a marriage. Right? In Genesis 2, 23-24, Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Right? A man leaves his father and his mother... Cleaves his wife, they become one flesh. There's a marriage. Husband and wife. That's the way the scriptures start. The, the beginning of humanity is a marriage. Right? Christ begins his ministry at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. Right? And who provides the good wine? It's Christ. Now, this isn't just any random event. At, at the wedding, who's responsible for providing the wine? It's not the best man. It's not the servants. It's the bridegroom. The bridegroom is responsible for providing the wine. So when Christ comes and He says, Okay, you haven't had any wine like this before. Let me show you the wine that I can provide for you. He's telling us that He is the bridegroom. Right? And eternity. Eternal life is basically... One joyful wedding banquet. Christ spoke about this in many parables. In Matthew 22 verse 2, "The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage or a wedding banquet for his son." Right? This is what heaven is like, a wedding banquet. If you don't like weddings, sorry, like you're not going to have fun at heaven. <laughs> but wedding is one big, joyful wedding celebration. This is what St. John saw in Revelation. Revelation nineteen seven, let's rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. So the essence of our covenant with God, our bond with God, is a marriage. It's a marriage of love. This is what God established with humanity on Mount Sinai. When He gave Moses the Ten Commandments, He says, I've established a covenant with you. He's basically saying, I've made you my wife. We're bound. It's not a covenant between two nations like a legal contract. No, it's a covenant of a husband and a wife entering into a marriage of love. This is what Ezekiel says. He describes how we were neglected or deserted prior to this covenant. And explains what God did for us. In, in Ezekiel 16, 9, God is speaking. He says, When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed you were at the age for love. Like you were old enough to get married. Right? You're at the age for love. So I spread my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine, says the Lord. Right? So the, the passage continues to talk about how God adorned his people like a husband adorns his bride, right? He beautifies her, he puts a crown on her, and makes her like a queen, he gives her a bracelet and a necklace, she becomes his bride. So a covenant with God is a bond of love, it's a marriage, right? Not a legal contract. Right? And that's why the description of sin throughout the whole scriptures is always considered adultery. When we commit a sin It's an act of adultery it's, Even if you worship another idol It's not idolatry It's adultery This is what the scriptures constantly repeat Throughout the whole Old Testament Every time Israel Falls into sin, worships other gods God is saying, you're committing adultery You're cheating on me Right? Sin isn't breaking Some sort of legal contract It's not like I break a law No, it's like I just cheated on my wife This is what Jeremiah says in in chapter 3. I'll jump around a little bit. He says, You've prostituted yourself with many lovers. You sit like a prostitute beside the road waiting for a customer. Like a wife who commits adultery. Israel has worshipped other gods in every hill and under every tree. I thought after she has done all this she'll return to me. But she didn't return. She's left me and given herself to prostitution. Israel treated it all so lightly. She thought nothing of committing adultery by worshipping idols made of wood and stone. O Israel, my my faithless people, come home to me again, for I am merciful. I'll not be angry with you forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity. Admit that you transgressed against the Lord your God and committed adultery against Him by worshipping idols under every green tree. And... You'll notice this if you just Read any of the, the prophetic books Whenever they're chastising the people When they're rebuking the people That's the language that they use And there's nothing more convicting It's not like you broke a law It's like you're spending time With someone you're not married to Right? That's, that's what it's all about I know it's, it's, it's strong language Right? Right? And it kind of pierces your heart But it should It should because that's the truth Again our relationship with God Is a bond of love It's a marriage Going back to this passage With the Samaritan woman Think about when this scene takes place It's at the sixth hour right Right St. John emphasizes that That it was at the sixth hour What's the significance of the sixth hour What does that represent Every day in Igbaya, what do we pray in the sixth hour Igbaya? What's the theme of that hour? The crucifixion. We say, Oh you who on the sixth day and the sixth hour was crucified on the cross for the sin which our father Adam dared to commit in paradise. Right? And so it's no coincidence that he's meeting this woman at this time when he will also give us his life on the cross to be crucified for us. It's no coincidence. This is when God ultimately completes that covenant on the cross, right? You could think of Christ proposing to the Samaritan woman at the well, and Christ seals the deal, the wedding day on the cross, right? In Ezekiel chapter 16, it says, Nevertheless, I'll remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, And I'll establish a covenant with you, an everlasting covenant with you. When I provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord. So when will I establish this everlasting covenant? When I provide an atonement for you. Right? On the cross, when He provided this atonement, when He gave us forgiveness. This is when the covenant is complete, when it's finalized, when it's fulfilled. Right? So on the cross, when Christ says, My God, My God... Why have you forsaken me? He's alluding to this mystery of leaving his father to cleave to his wife, to unite with his wife. Right? That's why Christ cries out on the cross. And of course, there's a sense of Christ entering into our darkness, identifying with our sins, all of that. But the deeper mystery of the reason why he cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's alluding to the only place where this word, azab, is used in the Old Testament. Whenever Adam recognizes the mystery of his marriage with Eve. In Genesis 2, when he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh that word azab is the only place in the entire scripture used it's only in this verse when Adam says that's why a man has to abandon his father and his mother that he is forsaken by his father and mother in order to do what? to cleave to his wife right? Father Thomas Hopko meditates on it he says the father abandons his son and leaves his son and tells his son to go and cleave to his wife. And the son abandons the house of the father and his mother. He leaves it, he forsakes it, in order to go and cleave to his wife. So you can dare to say, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he cries out with a loud voice, اللَّوِي اللَّوِي lama which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me or abandoned me? We could imagine that God the Father answers him, We can be bold enough and dare to imagine that God the Father would answer him and say to him, My son, my beloved, my chosen, you know why I must abandon you on the cross. I must abandon you so that you can go and cleave unto your wife and become one flesh with her. What a mystery is that? That Christ is uniting all of humanity with himself in this marriage on the cross. And that's the sense that you get for that word it is finished in the Latin. In the Latin it's consummatum est which is the word for it is consummated. It's consummated the marriage. Right? You have the sense that there's a bond that is perfected, completed. It's a marital bond. St. Therese of Lisieux says the cross is the bed on which God consummates his love affair with his creaturely bride how beautiful is that the cross is the bed on which God consummates his love affair with his creaturely bride this is what we find foreshadowed in the entire scriptures there's nothing new here and you probably find it more explicitly in the book of Hosea than anywhere else you know about the prophet Hosea right when God comes to Jose and he says, "Look, I have a wife for you." Jose is a righteous man. He's like, "Okay, cool, like, I've been looking for a good girl everywhere. You know, I'm going to all of like the prophet retreats and all the meetings. I can't find a good girl anywhere. So, finally, a girl handpicked by God. Okay, tell me, what's she like? She has green eyes, blue eyes. Is she brunette? Is she blonde? Um, oh here's a good question can she make like mama because like, if she can I'm all set God's like oh man you're going to be disappointed <laughs> sorry to break it to you but she's a prostitute she's a what? yeah she's a prostitute what do you mean? yeah I, I'm not, I can't lie to you uh, it's, not, it's not what I do so <laughs> I'm not kidding she's a prostitute Uh, How can I marry a prostitute? Well, you don't know this yet But you're modeling What I will ultimately do For my people You're modeling what I've been doing all along right? And so he goes Marries a prostitute He has children with her He loves her And his command is not just to marry her But to love her Not just to marry her Not to just bear with her but he says, go and love her as I love the children of Israel. That's, that's no ordinary love. Go and give this prostitute your heart. Give her unconditional love. When she cheats on you, chase after her. And that's precisely what Hosea does. He has children with her and she says, you know what, I'm bored. Sorry, I'm done with you. She goes, finds other men. What does Hosea do? Chases after her. It's, it's, a, it's a love that no one can comprehend. There's no way Hosea understood this. And eternity in all its fullness is not enough time for us to fully understand the extent of God's divine love. To make us His bride. To continue chasing after us despite our rebellion, despite our unfaithfulness. It's a concept that no one can fully understand. But this is precisely what we have in the Lord that we worship. Why would God do all of that? Why? Why do we have such a crazy God? Because this is what transforms us. The husband loves his bride with this radical love because it's the love of the husband that transforms his bride. There's... A beautiful letter that St. John Chrysostom writes to Eutropius. If you want to read a beautiful letter, I highly recommend this. So in this letter, he's talking about how God is in love with a harlot. How God is in love with a prostitute. And he's meditating on the reason for this. He says, this is the miracle accomplished by the bridegroom. That he took her who was a harlot and made her a virgin. That God took the harlot and made her a virgin. Oh what a new and strange event With us Marriage abolishes virginity Right With us Marriage abolishes So after you're married You're no longer a virgin Right But with God Marriage restores it Marriage restores virginity With us She who is a virgin When married Is no longer a virgin With Christ She who is a harlot When married Becomes a virgin And so, is this not precisely what happened with the Samaritan woman? A prostitute that's getting tossed around left and right from one man to the next has no value, no sense of identity, living in shame and guilt and embarrassment. When she says, yes, I'll marry you, what happens to her life? Her virginity is restored. She becomes even greater than the apostles at that time. Remember when Christ sent out the apostles two by two, and he says, go and preach, go tell all the Jews, but be careful, don't go into the land of the Samaritans. Where does she go? She goes where no apostle was permitted to go, into a place that doesn't even know about this Jewish man. Not only does she have the courage and the boldness to go and preach, but she compels them to go and meet this man. Who is this man that changed your life? Where is this newfound boldness coming from? Why do you have this confidence? Who is he? And that's why at the end of this passage, the people of Samaria say, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we saw him ourselves. And we know that this is the Savior of the world. That's why I want to leave you with the final scene that, we have as she departs Jacob's well. What does she leave behind? Her water pot, right? I want you to think about what this water pot represented for the Samaritan woman every day of her miserable life. She wakes up, she has to wait until the middle of the day, she carries this water pot and she's thinking about how no one is there to help her, she's thinking about all of these long trips every day, she's thinking about how everybody else can go at a decent time and she can't so water pot was just like this burden that kept reminding her of all her failures right and so when she found this new life in Christ right and and trust me when you're married you do have a new life you even change your your name right you change your last name you change your family name And so when she changed her name, she left her old life behind and she was converted. She was changed, right? This is the message of the gospel, that when we accept Christ as our bridegroom, when we accept the one who is proposing to us and he's asking me and you this question today, will you marry me? Will you enter into a marital relationship with me? Not just like any sort of friendship, not just like we're friends on Facebook, not just like we're acquaintances, but we're in a bond of love, right? And, and trust me, it's not like you have to go sleep with another girl to cheat on your wife. I mean, I had one person in the first year of marriage, I, I spoke to him about why their marriage fell apart. You know what he told me? It's because TV got in our way. The reason we got divorced was because of the television. We're just spending time doing other stuff. And then trust me, the the, the devil doesn't need to separate you with something more explicit if he could just put a little harmless distraction in between your bond. Right? And so when we consider that we are married, then I'm not going to spend time doing other stuff. It's not about like, oh, well, I'm not cheating on my wife if I do this. You mature in relationships and realize it's not about, you know, oh, I'm not doing anything wrong. It's about how can I grow in love? How can I grow in this relationship? That's what Christianity is about. Salvation is a relationship. And this is what we have in this passage a woman that found her bridegroom. May God open our eyes to see Christ on one knee proposing to us that we enter into this divine love, this divine romance. And have him just sweep us away by his love. We recognize that love, we will love him back. Like St. John says, we love him because he loved us first. And to God is due all glory forever. Amen.